Welcome to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson, a show that brings you regular interviews, tips and tools for building your business online. Let me take just a few seconds here to tell you about my brand new e-commerce course uh, that is perfectly designed for those of you who are looking to build your own online business, right? I know it's going to work well for you guys because we deep dive into the process that I use to build my own e-commerce businesses. We're going to look at the six key elements that you need to be aware of for building a successful online store. I'm utterly convinced it'll make a huge difference to your business. I am super proud of it let me tell you and it is brand new for 2020 it's called the e-commerce masterclass you can check out what other people think about the course you can find out more information on my site at mattedmondson.com Hi and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson, a show all about growing your own online business. Yes, how to do it, top tips, all that sort of stuff we get into every week. I get to talk to amazing people from the world of e-commerce and ask them all kinds of questions about what they know and how it's going to help us to develop and grow our own online businesses, right? Now, I don't know, have you ever thought about selling your e-commerce business? I mean, there are stories that you hear all the time, right, of people building an e-commerce business and then selling them for crazy sums of money. But selling an online business can be an overwhelming process because there is a lot of uncertainty and it requires patience and trust in the system. And as a seller going to market, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position because not only uh, do you not know if you're actually going to be successful at selling, but you also have to open up about the business and let people look into something that could be very private to you, right? And they're going to give you thoughts and feedback and all kinds of things about what you've done. So I am super excited today to be chatting to Brad Wayland of Quiet Light Brokerage. Um, He has helped countless e-commerce owners sell their businesses and he is going to give us all kinds of tips and tricks and insights that you are not going to want to miss, uh, especially if you're thinking of selling your business, right? How do we get the best sale that we can? Now, all of today's notes from the show will be available uh, for free uh, on our website. Just head on over to mattedmondson.com to download them. They are there for you for free. Just take a moment and go and download all the links that Brad talks about, everything are going to be in the show notes. Now, before we get into what is going to be a fascinating conversation and super helpful, let me take just a moment uh, to thank our show sponsors and we are going to get right into it. Let me give a big shout out to one of our show sponsors, Curious Digital. You know what? I love its flexibility. It's such a great platform. You know how when you start out, you might typically use an online platform because they're cheap, they're easy to use, super accessible. But you know what? They aren't that flexible. And as your business grows, you end up moving to an agency, right? 
because that's just what you do. And at some point, you're going to have this nightmare to deal with, and it can be incredibly expensive. And the thing for me that I love about KD is it will grow with you. You can start out on the platform easily, and as your business grows, then KD will adapt with you. Now, I don't know of any other platform that does all of that. So if you're in the market for a new e-commerce platform, make sure you follow the links from mattedmondson.com. Take advantage of the offers that they've got for you, and uh, let me know what you think. So, Brad, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being here. Great to have you on the show all the way from, well, near Nashville, Tennessee, right? You're, 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 you're beaming in. So uh, all the way to sunny Liverpool. Well, dark Liverpool now, but thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm glad to be here. No, no problem. It's, uh, it's a privilege, really, because we're going to get into this whole thing about selling your online business, right, which I... Um, I'm really intrigued about, right? Just so many questions buzzing through my head. And uh, look, I mean, I really enjoyed our pre-call where we talked about this and I thought, oh, this is going to be a great show. Um, But before we get into that, uh, I think it'll be good just so the audience understands a bit about you, what you do now and how you kind of came into this whole um, brokerage and selling online businesses. Yeah, so I've been in the workforce uh, almost 20 years and uh, was cl- was trained to be an accountant, a finance guy, something along those lines, was kind of wanting to get a financial analyst job out of, out of school. Uh, there was a publicly traded company that I was kind of hoping to work for in a, a financial analyst capacity, and the CEO got escorted out with the paperwork for my job approval on his desk. Oh, no. I went went back to the the VP that had kind of set me up with the interview and said, "Do you guys have anything?" And he said, "You know what? We've got a sales and use tax accounting job that just opened up." Okay, a little like, bit different. Oh, okay. Well, I'll I'll interview for it. So I took the job, and so I did ten hours a day of sales and use tax accounting and property tax for a big RV company in the states. And after about three months, I was like. I'm going to get fired. I felt like I was checking into a jail cell. My dad, my dad was a corporate guy, uh, worked for HP, uh, Hewlett Packard for 30 years. I thought that dad's job was like the most ideal. And so I, I planned my whole life around, I'm going to get a finance degree. I'm probably going to corporate or maybe I'll do some financial planning. That might be a, like a, an alternative path. And I got in and like three months in, I was like, I'm going to rot here. They'll never think I'm any good at anything. This is going to terrible. I can't, I can't even bring myself to like get into the office. And I realized that the same entrepreneurial spirit that had driven me all through high school and college was not going to let up and that I needed to do something that gave me a little more freedom and creativity. So I found my path I thought would be to go the financial planning route. So I leveraged some connections and some different things, got an offer from Edward Jones to come on as a, as a financial planner. And then I had two friends that had been running a t-shirt business that they started a few years before. Okay. And they said, Hey, do you want to jump in and do some like business development for us? And they had like 10 employees and I was like, yeah, sure. So I came in and started trying to sell t-shirts. And after a few months, they had this website, they were starting to get some sales from, and I started playing with the website. And that's when everything kind of changed for me. I got really into search and specifically into natural search, spent several years kind of fumbling it around, doing a terrible job. And, but 
had lots of freedom, you know, mm -hmm. wasn't making any money, but didn't have any, didn't have any responsibilities either. So I just worked all the time. Uh, my wife and I were both working and so I just worked a lot and failed a lot. And eventually after, from 2003 to 2006, I pretty much was just fumbling it around, you know, finding little successes here and there sure. on some paid ads. But in 2007, we kind of struck gold and, you know, built a site from the ground up to rank naturally. And on the day it launched, it was Gizmodo picked it up and put it on the front page. There was no social media. It crashed the site. And oh, wow. Thousands and thousands of people trying to get to it. No one could get to it. And then a month later, Adobe awarded us with a side of the day award and said, you guys have done the best flash, you know, you know, yeah, Photoshop yeah. environment we've ever seen, blah, blah, blah. And so we grew at like 50% a year for nine years. Holy cow. So it just, this was the t-shirt business. It was. Yeah. Wow. And so if you fast forward to, you know, uh, by the time I left that, you know, business, we had, you know, 125 employees, we had a 110,000 square foot warehouse that we were, that we owned, that we were producing shirts from, and it turned into a pretty good sized medium, you know, business. Now it, yeah. it went heavily into the fulfillment business, like fulfilling for other e-commerce. Yeah. And we never really developed out like a really good e-commerce team. And so the more time went on, the more we were kind of outmatched by other e-commerce players. And we were going more and more down the fulfillment road, which was less and less interesting to me because I really liked the web. Yeah. But I was always kind of a one-man band there. Like I ran all the web for this, you know, um, seven and eight figure business. And, you know, so I had to wear a lot of different hats and that gave me a lot wow. of experience and exposure yeah. to a bunch of different things. So, and just it's at one point I finally kind of got bored and I kind of felt like, man, t-shirts is a really hard way to make money. We had calculated that every shirt had to touch 22 hands before it left the building. Holy and cow. so that's a, that's a lot, lot of people. Work. Every, yeah. every order is custom. Every order is time sensitive. These are for groups. These are for, you know, I've got a charity event and all this yeah. stuff. And I have my shirt and it's got to be perfect. And nobody wants to be the guy that ordered 50 shirts that suck for his group. And so there's a lot of anxiety. And so I saw a friend of mine who was in the content space and he had a content site that he was looking at buying and it had made like three thousand dollars in the last month, and it was for sale for fifty grand. And I was yeah. like, "What? What do you do?" And he was like, "You don't do anything. You just post blogs and you know, things like that." And I was like, "I mean, that sounds like the kind of business I want to be in. I want to be in that business. Where <laughs> you just, you know, publish an article and then yeah, you yeah. three thousand dollars light bulb moment, right? Yeah. So he decided he wasn't going to buy it. He's like, "You know what? I found that it's only worth twenty five grand." I mean, I was like, "Well, can I buy it?" And he was like, "Sure." You can buy it. So I jumped in, bought it for 50 grand, made my money back in 10 months, and then went on a crazy buying spree where I bought 26 companies in five years. And oh my goodness. Ended up selling that into private equity in 2015. And so from 2015 to 2017, I was kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Still running a small portfolio had some other e-commerce things that have gone on during all that time. I'm not going to cover every little detail, but had some other things going, but nothing that was like, you know, really that involved mm. and got approached by Mark Doust at Quietlight, the founder of Quietlight. He took, we were at dinner one night and he said, Hey, what'd you think about coming on and advising clients for 
white light. And I was like, you mean come on and be a broker? And he was like, yeah, what would you think about that? And I was like, honestly, if I give up on everything and there's, and I have nothing left, I think that sounds like a good idea. Mm. And Mark was like, wow, thank you for putting it so you know nicely. And I told him, I was like, honestly, Mark, can anybody even make any money in that work? <laughs> All the guys I've dealt with seem like total sleazebags. And yeah. he was like, well, we do it different. And, you know, you, you're an entrepreneur. I only hire entrepreneurs and I court them. And so that's, he kind of planted the seed and then he would send me things every now and then he'd be like, Hey, did you know that this is how much people earned at quiet light? Did you know that this is the kind of lifestyle they have? And then my, I remember calling him one day and I said, okay, Mark, look, I I can't really work for anybody. So I got a question for you. How much time could someone take off? So that's not really a job. I mean, I, I, we share fees. I mean, I don't, I, I have a, underneath quiet light but but i said how much time could a broker or a advisor take off before it would be a problem for you and he said well i wouldn't want anybody to take off more than a year at a time i was like okay i'll give it a try <laughs> but that was the he seems that was like the a great guy i mean just saying that this, is yeah this guy really understands entrepreneurs he understands yeah. they don't want to feel tied down and so his his kind of premise behind the whole uh, quiet light thing is, Hey, you know, we're going to put people that have done a lot of things online out there. And they're going to be people that have operated, bought and sold businesses. And we're going to let them advise sellers on how to get out with a successful exit. And so I've been doing it for three years and I've had some pretty decent success with it. And I do really enjoy um, moving from problem to problem. Each business is a problem. I get to jump in, spend a, spend some time with these people, try to solve that problem, and then move on to the next one. Wow. And uh, so, you know, I, I'm an operator. Um, I probably will operate again at some point in a more involved capacity, but I've really enjoyed getting to know this space better, getting to know the private equity side of this space better, made a lot of good connections and right now I'm really enjoying advising clients on kind of how to go from point A to point B. Wow. So that's what you're doing now. You're, you're helping clients sell their online business. So you, they come to you, I want to sell the business. You get them ready to, to sell their business, help them figure stuff out so they get maximum return on their, on their sale. Is that, have I understood that right? That's exactly what we do. Now we have a lot of buyers and sellers. And so buyers come to me all the time too a very common thing. Um, I get emails. I probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 emails a month of people saying, Hey, I need to get 30 minutes of your time. I want to tell you what we're looking for. Okay. Which is not, I don't even really know how to respond to those because I don't want to take those calls. Um, those are, those are difficult calls for me. I'm not a, I'm not a search service to find you a business. Um, I think there's some talk at quiet light of some folks offering that kind of thing by side. Um, but as a general rule, I represent sellers. I'm really trying to help sellers, people that are ready to sell, prepare for selling. And so I've got to navigate buyers and sellers. Okay. So there's a whole bunch of people who listen to this show, Brad, whose ears have suddenly perked up because they'll have an online business and it will have entered in their head, the idea of selling, and they would have heard of other people selling their online business. But I think running my own online businesses and having been approached a couple of times to buy my company, the whole thing feels a little bit like it's shrouded in 
kind of mystery and black arts. I don't know if it's just me that thinks that, but is that is that quite a common feeling that people have? I think that it is can be an overwhelming process. Um, emotionally, it doesn't seem to work well with entrepreneurs as a general rule. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, entrepreneurs are not known for being patient. It requires some patience. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's you know if it's that mysterious what's actually going on. But I think that you kind of have to be prepared that it's a vulnerable time when you go to sell. Okay, putting yourself in a vulnerable position because not only do you not know if you're going to be successful at selling, but you also have to kind of open up the business and let people look into something that's been very private in most cases and let them give their thoughts about what you've done. Yeah. And sometimes that makes the entrepreneur feel threatened. Sometimes it makes them feel just uneasy. Sometimes they don't care. It depends on the person. Um, But I find, I mean, we have people that come to us and say, I want you to sell my business, but I don't want to really reveal any information about my business. Okay. I I thought those two things would have gone hand in hand myself. That's not what they, that's not what they say, but that's what they're really saying. Oh, okay. When you get down to it. Yeah. They're like, Hey, so yeah, I'd love to sell it. Um, now you're not going to show that P and L to anyone, are you? (laughs) Well, I guess I'm a little bit more relaxed about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, Do you not have it? So, I mean, in the UK, uh, my accounts are public. Everyone can see my accounts. You just go to the company's house website, which is run by the government, and you can download them because it's a public, it's a limited company. So it's part of the deal. The ones where you can't see their accounts are the ones where it's private, where it's like a, a partnership or where it's just in my name. Um, and so I don't, I don't know if I'd have an issue with publishing my accounts as such because they're they're out there um, already, if that makes sense. Yeah, so in the States, the only ones that are public as a general rule are the ones you see on the public stock exchanges. Okay. So Tesla, yeah. Apple, you know, those those are companies that are public. And if they're publicly traded, then their numbers are public. Um, you know, in my case, think have you, have you heard about all the the hubbub about Donald Trump's tax returns. Yes. This is a perfect example. You know, there's this big, there's this big debate in the States about whether or not does Donald Trump have to show his tax returns or not. And, um, because in, in America, if you have a private company, you don't have to share anything with anyone besides the IRS. And, you know, what we've come to learn is even what people show the IRS, it can be very confusing. Yeah. Long, big, big tax code with a lot of loopholes for, for wealthy people. Okay. So, uh, okay. Well, I mean, I, I am very tempted to go down the Trump tax return debate, but let's avoid it for now. <laughs> so if I was, if I was wanting to sell my online business, right. Um, where do I start? Where, what's, what's a good place to sort of get my head to, to sort of before I start this journey? Well, you can't even think about selling if you don't have good records. So, you know, the, the kind of the, the very most fundamental place to start is if you're not keeping your financials monthly 
and very organized, there's no chance anyone's going to be able to sell anything for you. So we got to have really good history. So I have calls with people that are getting started all the time. And I say, you know, Hey, are you keeping your financials, things like that? And sometimes they say yes, but sometimes they say, well, I mean, I have an idea you know, what I'm doing, but I'm not, I'm not really. And that does, doesn't work. You really have to, before you can think about selling, you have to really keep your numbers going in a very consistent fashion for really, we need three years. Okay. Uh, we sell stuff on 24 months sometimes, but, um, but 36 months is a more ideal setup. And so we got to have people that are really kind of in the details. They've got revenue minus cost of goods sold minus expenses equals net profit. And then if there's some ad backs or something, it gets to what we call seller discretionary earnings, which is just, you know, your discretionary income, which your net income plus maybe some other like personal things that you're allowed to expense on the business in your country or something, sure. you know, that are personal. Um, and so I always start with the financials, but there's other questions that we have to ask ourselves. And okay. so one is how transferable is the business? It's a big question. Uh, I'll give you an example. Had someone that wanted to sell an app that I had sold previously, like an iPhone app mm-hmm. in the last year. And there's a, there's a button in the developer tools for Apple that if you click it, you can never transfer that app ever again. Oh, wow. Okay. Privacy and iCloud. Yeah. And so the guy that I sold it to the first time, he operated it for a while and he came back and said, hey, you know, I didn't really ever pay much attention to this. I think I should probably unload it. His developer was doing some updates and saw this box about iCloud and he checked it. And that box made that application untransferable for forever. If it's not transferable, you, you're not going to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, uh, risk, you know, there's, there's risk situations going on. And so, you know, it's hard to, hard to articulate, but I'll give you just an example. Like I had a, I had a valuation request for a domain name this week that's related to the pandemic. So like, it's not this one, but I'll just use this as an example. COVID19.com. Yeah. You know, so if someone throws me in, and we don't really sell domains, but if someone throws me COVID19.com and they're like, Hey, I want to sell this. It could be earning a million dollars a month right now because there's tons of talk around the world about COVID-19 and maybe it's filled out with information and it's got ads on it, but is anyone going to buy it? If they think that a vaccine or whatever this, you know, whatever's going on will be gone in six months, mm-hmm. there's tons of risk. And so, you know, we got to have documentation. We got to assess whether there's transferability. We got to assess what the risk of the business is. These are all going to determine the price, but they're also going to determine whether or not a sale is even possible. Sure. You know, to even happen. That's really interesting. And so, I mean, I, uh, I, and I. I guess it also depends, like, I think about, so I have a, a beauty company called Jersey Beauty Company, which is probably the most sellable site that I have at the moment. So if I was going to offload something, that would be that site. So we have accounts going back to 2006. Um, so I check, do you know what I mean? I'm just running through my little my little checklist in my head. So accounts are good. Transferability, I'll come back to that. And then risk, you know, uh, it's been around for a while it's in the beauty business it's kind of stable it is what it is right 
And so I guess if I was to ask, answer the question about transferability, I, I think there would be a number of different ways to answer that question. For example, um, I could transfer that business, um, say, to uh, if I sold that business to somebody who um, didn't have anything to do with e-commerce, just wanted the business and they bought it. So they bought the distribution system. Do you know what I mean? They, the whole thing becomes theirs. Well, that's very different to me transferring that or selling that to somebody who already owns an e-commerce business, who's already got a warehouse, who's already got the fulfillment engine and staff. Um, and they're just literally plugging, you know, it's plugged into this system over here and the next day it's plugged into that one and away they go, they're shipping out the products. Um, I think I find, I, so I, I get what you mean in terms of transferability and the nuances and, and who buys it and, and the value therefore that it's associated with. Cause I think if, if, um, you know, if, uh, if someone came to me to buy the business just because they wanted to run it, they like beauty and they wanted to create an income. Well, I don't think to them it's worth as much. Maybe I'm, I'm getting this wrong. It's worth as much as it is to the guy over here that's already got the distribution facility who doesn't need all those extra on costs. He's going to make a lot more profit than this person over here. Yeah, it's definitely a real uh, situation that we deal with. Um, now, you know, you're in the UK, so the, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but in the States, about 95% of what we sell goes as an asset sale. Mm-hmm which usually means that the goods are transferred from one warehouse to another, that everything is kind of, you know, and the business that was there, whatever the name of it was, XYZ Corp that the seller had stays. And he just empties out all of its revenue. And then he's got a company either has to like go find a new revenue source for it or just shut it down, close it down with the operators. What I found with sellers in the UK, I don't know how much of your audience is, is UK based, but, um, Many times, UK sellers, one of the transferability concerns becomes that they want to tap into entrepreneurs' tax relief. Yeah, I definitely would. Yeah, yeah. Which is a program in your country that I think takes your tax from like 40% or something down to 10. Is that right? right? Yeah, yeah. So here's the issue with that is that requires a stock sale, which means you've got to sell the business entity, the limited liability, whatever you call it, limited company. You've got to sell that whole entity. We run into some red tape on that from a couple different angles. For one, we can't legally offer a public company up for sale. It's against the law. Um, you need an SEC. That's a that's a U.S. based company, uh, U.S. based uh, regulatory arm, Securities and Exchange Commission. You need an SEC uh, license in order to sell a publicly traded company. Now, oh wow, no one's actually doing it. When you're talking about an, an e-commerce business or something like that, there there isn't any SEC brokers that I'm aware of that are actually doing it. They they actually deal with public companies like mm. Tesla, Apple, and places like that. So it's a little bit of a, a problem in our code. So we, we offer things up as an asset sale. Now, if someone comes in and says, "Hey, I want to buy it as a as a stock sale," they can do it. It just changes how we interact with the transaction. We can't we can't really be involved in the same way. Uh, we can we can help market the business for sale and help you prepare everything, which is the most important part of what we do. But when it really comes down to it, you know, you're gonna have to sell the whole company. And so that becomes a transferability concern. Sometimes, you know, if, I, if you came to me and said, let's list, list the company for sale, and I put it out there, 
and as, you know, we put it out there as an asset sale because we're required to. And you say, well, if it was going to go as an asset sale, I'd have to sell it for more. Or we'd have to work out something, you know, in order to make up for this difference. And then you guys flip it to stock. There's going to be some buyers that are like, well, I don't want to buy the stock. Mm. And there's reasons for that because, like in the U.S., if someone buys your business for a million dollars, then they, if they buy it as an asset sale, they can go depreciate that asset. They got a million dollars in basis in it. If they buy it, if they buy the stock of your company, excuse the UK company, but if you buy a stock of someone's company, a lot of times the basis is less because mm. that person didn't put as much. They put the sweat into the business to make it grow, but they didn't put as much in, not as much, not as much basis left. So there's other transferability concerns, but to, to your point, I think that the internet kind of provides us with this opportunity to sell businesses much more streamlined than like a traditional brick and mortar business. Yes, there's some complication. There's warehouse concerns. There's there's logistics that are issues. But when you compare it to other businesses for sale out there, even the most complex look pretty simple. Yeah. When you compare them to the other types of businesses people can buy. That's very true. And um I mean, I guess if I flip this then if I was looking to buy an e-commerce business for the very reasons that you've just said, um, what are some of the things that I should be thinking about? Because that's also going to help me to understand how I should sell it, I would have thought. Yeah. Well, it's funny because it's really the same things. I mean, I want to know, is there documentation? I want to know what the risk is of buying it. I want to know what the trajectory looks like um, in, in terms of uh, where it's going. And I want to know about, you know, kind of the transferability of the assets to me. I, it actually, we're both, both buyers and sellers are kind of looking at the same information and just looking at it from a different angle. But, you know, what I find that the buyers really want to see is they're really scared of trends. Yeah. Buyers want to see good trends. People come to me all the time and they say like, Hey, I got this business. It's been great. Last couple months really been rough that's that's a really difficult time to sell because the buyers don't know your business at all so when they see those last two months don't look good all they're thinking is well this is going to be at zero in 15 months yeah they just do the math it's all worst case scenario they don't have any sense of like that there's an actual brand here that's got some trust and things like that and so buyers care immensely about the trends and they're willing to pay for good trends and they're not willing to pay for bad trends, honestly. And then, um, you know, the easier you can make the transition and the lower the price, the faster things can close. And then the inverse, the more complicated the transition and the higher the price, the harder it is to, you know, kind of get, get it closed. So what would be, if I was looking to sell, what would be a typical time frame? Uh, or is that asking like how long's a piece of string? No, it's um, so I don't I can't speak to our competition like for sure, but I've been told by people who call me that are like they're currently listed with our competition or they're talking with them about uh, I've been told that our competition across the board does like a six month to a one year contract exclusivity, meaning no one else can sell it for six months to a year, depending on which firm you go with. Ours has always been 90 days. And I think that Mark's approach to that was basically that the timer starts once we push the business live, which takes a couple of weeks, depending on the business, take a couple of weeks to get to that point. But we push it live. 
if we don't have a buyer identified in 90 days, our feeling is you need to be allowed to go look somewhere else. People do not want to be in the sales process for two years. You know, they, they don't want to be in it for six months. Um, but you know, at, at quiet light, just as a kind of general rule of thumb, we try to be careful about pricing at the valuations that we set ourselves. I'm not here to have someone come tell me, Hey, I've got my business and I know you said it's worth 500,000, but I want you to stick it out there at 650 because I think there might be a chance. We just don't do that. You just stick with the 500. It's like, we're going to sell it at 500 and it is what it is, but we want to do it. We know enough about what it takes to get one of these deals done that we are not going to allow you to shoot the deal in the foot because we know that you'll be in pain Okay. or positive. So, so what we say instead is, look, we don't agree. If you don't want to list, that's fine. You know, you can take it elsewhere or you can hold on to it, but we feel strongly about it. Now, if I don't feel strongly, I'll be just the opposite. If I say, man, I don't know how much this thing's worth. Maybe it's something that I haven't dealt with, or maybe there's some reasons why it's hard to put a value on. And I say, you know, I think it's probably worth 500. And you say, Brad, I think it's worth $650,000. I say, I really don't know what it's worth. So if you want to stick it out there at 650, we could do that for a few weeks and see what happens, but we need to be prepared to lower the price if it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I don't think that we always try to pretend like we know the exact price. I'm a, I'm a big believer in the market forces. So, you know, the market's going to ultimately tell us, but I do feel like I've got a pretty good sense for what the market's going to say in most deals on the forefront. And what I want to do is I want to have a situation where when we launch it, we get multiple parties that are interested in the business. When you sell your home, at least in the States, when people sell their home, they overprice it almost hundred percent of the time. Mm -hmm. I think right now is actually a seller's market in the States because you know, they're printing money like crazy and interest rates are super low and yeah. sellers are actually selling pretty quick. But as a general rule, when people put their house up for sale, if their house is worth, you know, $500,000, they listed it at 549. And then they play this waiting game. And it's like, I'm going to wait for that buyer. I think it's worth 549. But the market, you know, when you do a when you do a limit order, when you're doing stocks, when you buy a stock, if you press market order, that's the price that it sells or is bought or sold at right now. Yeah. If I press market order on Tesla, then I buy a share at the current price, no matter what it is. Yeah. And so my philosophy and, and really QLB's philosophy on how we handle listings is we really want to go in as close to the market price as possible. And the reason is this, they're it's really tough to get these transactions done. Mm -hmm. They fall apart over the smallest things. They're very, very fragile. So when we go at the market rate, we get lots of buyers to come in and then the cream rises to the top. And then our sellers are able to pick from, Hey, I've got these three really good candidates to buy my business. They're willing to pay this this market rate. They all agree that the price is about the same. Their offers are within $10,000 of each other. They're all about the same. They close in about the same amount of time. And then we end up picking between, well, which one looks like it's the most sure to close. That's a very common you know, kind of situation. So that's how we want to strategically approach it. It's yeah. not so much about, I think it's great to have pie in the sky numbers. You don't come to, you don't come to Quiet Light or any broker for the pie in the sky numbers, those pie in the sky stories that you read on TechCrunch and things like that, those are very rare. Mm. Things generally sell for what they're worth. And so I think we should try to put it out there at what we think it's worth. 
and the market will correct us. And at yeah. Quite Light, I don't remember what the last data I saw on it was, but we get an unbelievably high amount of our deals sold at asking price or above. And it's not because we're underpricing it. It's because we're putting it out there at the market rate. A lot of times people come and say, I think you got this priced right. I'm interested. Yeah. But if we overprice it by 20%, there are good buyers that will respond and say, this looks like a great business, but I'm not going to dig in because it's overpriced. Okay. So how do you how do you reach that market value? What what are some of the criteria that you're I mean, I'm not asking you for your secret sauce, Brad, but do you, do you know what I mean? It's that kind of, um, it's, it's, um, if I'm, if like, I've got my business, what are some of the things that I need to think about to give me some indicative idea of value besides the things that you've already mentioned? Well, the range is really tight. So, you know, I don't know that there's any real secret to the sauce here. Just so you know, not to burst your bubble. Oh, um, I'm not over here. I'm not over here modeling out some very complex <laughs> thing. And I'm like, wait, once I get the last factor, we're going to push, you know, the equals button and we're going to find out your exact valuation. It doesn't really work like that. I'm really leveraging my experience. You know, I, I've sold five times myself. I've had five personal. Okay. Yes. I have bought 32 times. Wow. So I've been a buyer and I've brokered about 40 deals. So you got a fair bit of experience. You got more than me, Brad. I'm not going to lie. Right. I just kind of hung out in that space. And so I have some sense. And then not just that, but I also follow the industry. So I see all of our deals at Quiet Light. So I hear, I see them. I've got access to the data. I can see what the multiples were, see all the stuff. And so what what I found e commerce. You know, and I'm going to take subscription out of it. So like we got all these people that are doing like, you know, nutrition supplements, things like that. They got subscription revenue. Take that out of this equation because subscription revenue is different. Okay. Got a, got a subscriber. It's going to pay you every month. Then we need to talk. But traditional e-commerce, I find a product. I press add to cart. I go to the cart. I check out. You ship it to me or I go to Amazon. I add it to cart. Go check out. In traditional e-commerce, the multiples are pretty tight. The overwhelming majority, like I'd say 90% of the businesses are selling between a 2.5 times multiple and a 3.5 times multiple of earnings. So when, let, let me just clarify language. When you say earnings, how, what's that figure? Is that, would it's I call that turnover? Would I call that profit? Would I call that gross profit, net profit? What, what are we talking okay. about? So we would look at it as your revenue is your top line. Mm-hmm. Not a multiple of that. Minus your cost of goods sold is yep. your gross profit. Yeah. Minus your expenses is your net profit or your earnings. Yeah. And then I said earlier, you might have some addbacks. And addbacks might be like your personal health insurance or your personal cell phone or your personal car or whatever. Personal vacation that you're allowed to expense for one reason or another. I don't know yep. what the things are. Different. And so we add all those back. That gets us to seller discretionary earnings, meaning, hey, the business made $100,000, but, you know, because Matt does this, 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 and this, it actually made 150 because yeah. those are discretionary. The new owner is going to have 150 to play with. They may choose to go get that car or get that whatever, or they may not. So when I say two and a half to three and a half times the earnings, I mean the net, the net, net, profit. net yeah. profit number or the seller discretionary earnings number. Now, um, gets kind of complicated because on smaller deals, which 
I'm going to use a very broad stroke for smaller. And it's not a fine line. It's not like an exact line. Let's just say deals under 7 million. That's not okay. all small. That's smaller, yeah. Smaller. Yeah, it's smaller, not because I'm, I'm not saying 7 million is actually a big deal, but smaller because I'm going to compare it to the larger. So smaller deals, we add inventory to the purchase price. Okay. So let's just say your business was making $250,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And I said it was worth a three times multiple. That's $750,000. And then you tell me, hey, landed cost of goods that I haven't sold yet that are sellable is 100000 So in that case, we would sell it for three times multiple plus inventory. So if someone came and wanted to pay full price, they'd pay seven fifty plus one hundred. Okay. Now the larger of that scale for us is the seven to thirty million range, which we're being asked routinely to advise on. And in those deals, they almost always sell to private equity. And private equity will walk out of the room if you tell them they have to pay for inventory separate. Okay. They're going to want a working capital peg. They're going to want inventory included. It's, it's just different lingo, different everything. The reason why we do that separation is because on the smaller deals, the it makes more sense to the entrepreneur buyer. To people who are not in private equity that are like running a small team, have a small business where they're acquiring some businesses or they're an individual, the idea of I want to know what I'm paying for the business and then I want to talk about the inventory. They like those conversations to be separate. Mm. We're not going to exchange any working capital. If you got a hundred grand in the bank, whenever you sell the business, you're going to sweep that out. They're going to put their own money back in the business. Um, that's how that's going to work. You get to private equity. Like I have a deal right now, $25.2 million deal under LOI. Uh, the seller is taking 18750 out of the of this transaction and rolling 25% into the new entity with the buyers. Wow. And so that's a private equity deal. So in that case, um, you know, we don't the value of the inventory is included in that 25.2. Mm-hmm. And so is working capital, which will be like, you know, probably close to a million dollars. Okay. That's that really be- interesting. So I mean, uh, I dare say the majority of people listening to the show would be you would class as a small deal. A few of them would be the larger ones, um, which I find fascinating. The thing that you you mentioned, the multiple figure. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy called Albert Goubet. He's um, he's a British entrepreneur. Um, passed away a few years ago. He he's he was if he started a few companies in the UK that most people in the UK will know, but they won't know who he is. It was kind of like one of these hidden figures, if that makes sense. And um, when he passed away, I don't know, you know, he was multiple hundreds of millions of wealth. I mean, he was a very wealthy chap. And um, I had the privilege of getting to know him. And we did some work together over the years. And he was very kind and very gracious to me, took me under his wing a little bit. And he said to me one day, because I was asking him this question, this was before I got into e-commerce about how do you value a business? Because he would buy businesses and he would sell businesses. And he very simply said to me, Matt, listen, what you do is you take the net profit and you times that by three and that's the maximum value of that business. If you can get it, if you can buy it under that value, you've got a winner. And so I'm really fascinated that actually that's, that's pretty much between two and a half and three and a half is what you said. It's it seems like Goubet's wisdom from 20 years ago is still carrying forward, which I find quite fascinating. 
And so if I bring that back then to the business that you purchased, the content business that was making three grand a month, which is 36,000. So you buying that for 50,000, actually that was a bit of a bargain going by that multiple. Yeah, so the risk on that one was that it had only made 3,600 for two months. Okay, so there wasn't the three so years the longevity. Months, it had made like 1,400, 1,400, 1,500, 1,400, 1,400 for the whole, all the years before. Yeah. And then the last two months before the sale, it made 3,600. And so I go to the seller and I say, hey, why did it make 3,600 these months? He's like, well, I started doing advertisements inside the posts. Like, I've got these people that would reach out to me. There's thousands of posts. And they would say, hey, we want to be featured in this post as an ad and because it really appeals to our users. And he said, so I think that that revenue will be there if you're willing to do those kinds of sponsorships going forward. I just never done them before, but I can't be for sure. Well, not only that, but I mean, I made my money back in, in 10 months by doing that and more. Yeah. I mean, I, I got that thing up to five or 6,000. And by the time that particular buy ended up growing much larger than that. Um, and that's what led me to buying a bunch of stuff in that exact space. I ended up buying 14 domains in that space from different, you know, as different acquisitions. Um, and so, you know, that is true. So let me clarify two things. Number one, a $5 million deal or a $6 million or $7 million is not a small deal. I was only saying it for the example of 30 yeah, million. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So small deals for us, our average deal size is about a million. Okay. If you, if you include private equity sales, which we, we don't like to include them because they skew our numbers. If you include our private equity deals, it moves it up to like 1.5 million mm -hmm. on average. So if people come to us and they say, I got a business for sale and it's like $150,000, that's a small deal for us. Uh, there might be a broker at QLB that would take it on and sell it. Uh, our list loves to see a small deal, you know, because they're used to seeing larger deals. So when something small comes out, they scoop it up, you know, really fast a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Um, so that one clarification is just on, on big and small. Like I, I think a $5 million listing is a large listing. Um, but for that example, I was trying to differentiate. The other thing, uh, that I would mention is when I say the overwhelming majority sell for two and a half to three and a half, that's a true statement. Let's talk about what doesn't sell for two and a half to three and a half. So like the business I just gave you the example of sure, 25.2 million <clears throat> and we're under LOI. We're going to close before the end of the year. We had three competing offers, and the multiple was six point two. Okay. So where can where can we expand that multiple? Well, growth, great growth opportunities, great historical growth. That's one way. Yeah. Longevity. This is a ten year old business that's had a history of growing. Um, in this case. There's been a couple of acquisitions made in the last year that haven't really shown all their value yet. So that raised the multiple sum. So, you know, we just tried to put it out there at the highest that we could justify. And one of the ways that we're justifying is his growth is justifying the multiple. So we're like, yeah, you're going to pay 6.2 at close, but he's still going to be the CEO. And here's where he'll be next year. And it's pretty compelling. Like it's not. It, it looks like it will fall into a much more reasonable, not three, but much more reasonable. So uh, also, you know, had a young company come to me this week, and I, I potentially will take this on, had a young company come to me this week, uh, only 18 months old, 21 million in sales. 
Oh my goodness. The dream. In, yeah. Yeah. Trailing Good 12 months. Yeah. And 5 million in profit. Wow. Really, really strong. And so they, one of the comments that they made was, you know, what can we sell this thing for? And I said, well, we only have 18 months of history. Why are you guys trying to get out? And they're like, well, we just, it's just grown so fast that, you know, we just really feel like we need to take some chips off the table. Like, it's just, I think it's just overwhelming. It's just yeah, been yeah. such a whirlwind. And they moved into such a big business so fast. 20, you know, 20 something year old guys running it. Um, you know, in that case, I'll still try to go at a premium multiple. I won't go at 6.2 because we only have 18 months of history and we got product concentration. Most of it's to like a single SKU. I mean, there's lots of concerns, but with that kind of growth, you also have to believe like, man, what is the opportunity there? Yeah. That's a big opportunity. And so, uh, we're, we're kicking around the idea of going at 4.25 on that. And that would be high if it was like a $500,000 business, but it would clearly be a private equity deal. 4.25 is pretty light on multiple for private equity. Uh, I don't know that they'll be overly offended by it. Okay. So just, just some context. I, I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating, Brad. It's my, my head is spinning uh, with a million different questions. So I appreciate you letting us know. Um, if, if I was, uh, let's say with Jersey, for example, so I have this beauty company. So I have, I have three options, I guess, in front of me, right? Um, one, I could sell it. Two, I could carry on with it um, and keep doing with it what I'm doing. Or three, one of the things you talked about there is I could try and grow it maybe with acquisition. I could try and buy more businesses to build my business and grow my business. Um, it. Uh, the the latter of the, the those three being probably the most scary, if I'm honest with you. Um, but is that a viable strategy for growth as an entrepreneur, as, a, as an e-commerce business um, to think, actually, maybe I don't sell it. Maybe I go and buy other people's businesses and that's how I'm going to build what I'm doing. Yeah, it's, the, it's, it's really the easiest way to grow is to acquire. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I got so addicted to buying is because I didn't want to do the hard work. <laughs> actually growing the entities that I had. So I had them under, uh, you know, my own umbrella of companies. And so, you know, if I was, if, if capital is not your biggest issue, then acquiring makes a lot of sense mm. because you can just basically buy the success that you want. I'm just like, well, how much more do I have to buy? I mean, I can remember tracking my revenues and income and saying, well, I'm here today but I want to go to here. So how much more do I need to buy? And I would just, it was just a math equation for me. I was just like, okay, well, I need to buy at about a two and a half times multiple. I need to buy this much, you know, this many assets and that'll get me to here. That's how I kind of did it. Now, a couple of words of caution there. First of all, the question of whether or not you should sell is one that I don't think entrepreneurs are executing on very level-headed. Oh, I'd love to know what you, th- why, why, why do you think that? Well, because so many people come to me and say, I think it might be time to sell. And the reasons for it are a lot of times are circumstantial. Like I'm bored. Um, 
I've been doing this a long time and I think I'd like to just take some chips off the table. These are very common kinds of answers. Yeah. But here's what I'll tell you from someone who's sold some things and bought some things. Once you sell, now that income stream is gone. Now you have a pot of money instead of the income stream. You want to talk about feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> the pot of money is way more uncomfortable than the income stream. Unless the pot of money is so gigantic that you can never exhaust it. So my thing is people always say like, man, I, I can't believe you even do this job and give this advice. So my, my philosophy is if you enjoy the business, you've had that business since 2006. Yeah. Do you enjoy it? Um, if I'm honest, I'm enjoying it more under COVID than I have probably the previous two years. Um, so I think I've, um, I would say I've rekindled my love for it. Um, sure. But if I'm honest, I would say I, I got bored with it. I can see why people would say that. So I'm just bored with this now. Yeah. So if people enjoy it, and if they think that the prospects for the future are good, like if you're in a business that you think is going to get shut down by Amazon or the competition is going to be so great that it's going to disappear overnight, then that's not a good roadmap, you know, for the future. <laughs> yeah, no one's going to want to buy that. I wouldn't have thought. Right, right, and 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 that's why maybe if you can sell it, you should sell it if you, if you think that's where things are going. But if you're in an industry where things look stable, where you think the prospects for for growth are good, where you enjoy the work enough, then I would say never sell. Mm. I'd say just keep it and just incrementally improve it and don't ever abandon it. And um, but. Where I start to feel like people should sell are one, are you not doing the things that you need to be doing to take care of the business? That's the number one sign that I see. A lot of times people, instead of going through the complication of selling, they're like, I think I'll just put this thing on autopilot, see what happens. I can tell you, I have the answer to what happens when you do nothing to a business. Do you want to know what it is? It crashes 100% of the time. Yeah. And I have people contact me all the time and say, I haven't done anything to this thing for a year and the trends are great. And what I say to that is that won't last. It's very rare. I own an application that might be the exception to the rule. It is an application that allows for note taking in the cloud like Evernote. But it's free and I sell ads on top of it and I literally don't ever look at it and the traffic doesn't come from Google all the traffic's direct 20,000 visits a day it's all direct traffic I bought it from somebody yeah they didn't even have analytics on it I said well can we hook analytics up to it hook it up first day I saw 20,000 visits and I was like 20,000 visits. Good night. A lot of traffic here. So then we go look at it and I was like, well, where's this coming from? Is Google or something? Oh, no, it's all direct. Direct visits. Just people that use the app. Mm. And so, you know, now it's not a huge business. It makes a few thousand dollars a month in ad revenue with very little, you know, no cost really associated with it, just servers. You know, so that 
is a business that I might be able to do nothing. With. I don't even know what I would do if I was going to work on. It, I don't even know what I would do. <laughs> I don't even know what I would do to it. But most things, if you if you are going to abandon it, it's going to crash. It's going to crash, and 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 it's going to crash way worse than you expect when it does. It's weird in the internet age. Some of them hold on for long enough that the entrepreneur becomes convinced that they won't crash. And sometimes those are the ones that when they finally do catch up, they catch up in a very brutal way. Yeah. And they crash hard. But, you know, so I would say, you know, keep the business if you're, if you enjoy it, if you're willing to do the, the amount of work that it takes to actually maintain the business, no reason to sell unless you just need the money or something like that. Um, what you find is once you sell, got that pot of money I was talking about, you got to go on a search. What you find is that you're on a search to replace what you had. Yeah. And so it started to feel to me, and this is why people have asked me, they're like, why did you stop buying? Like you were doing all this buying and selling, you sold into private equity. seemed like you had a pretty good gig going. Why did you stop doing that and start working at Quiet Light? And I would say, what well, I didn't really stop. I don't buy deals that are on our, but I have connections from all my years. Sure. Things come my way. I still invest in projects. Um, and I still have a portfolio, I still have some sites, things that I'm interested in, you know, that, that I own, uh, that are very low workload, things like that. But one of the reasons why I stopped is because it's a vicious cycle. I only liked buying, but once I, what I realized is that I would buy, I would operate. I, I was good at finding some low hanging fruit early. That's always been kind of my thing. Buy something at a good multiple find some low hanging fruit early. Mm -hmm. That's kind of my, that was my thing. Never would take things down to the level of detail that I needed to, uh, cause I just didn't enjoy it. Um, I'm like you, I mean, you have an accounting degree. I can do the accounting. I can do the detail work. That doesn't mean I love it. No, I, I, I like it for like two hours and then I'm bored <laughs> with it. I and can I build a spreadsheet and then move on. It's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, how I'm, that's how I am. I really enjoy the detail work for a period of time, mm -hmm. but I don't, if you're going to do like, like content, especially I did a lot in content contents, detail work. Mm -hmm. If you want to do really well with content, you're going to be in the detail work 12 hours a day. Yeah. You're going to be in there breaking down every little detail, of what this post is doing compared to this other post, and all that kind of stuff. So I just tell you all that just to say that, like, for me, it became a vicious cycle of sold. Here's a big pile of money, but now I need to replace that income because I value the income. I don't just want the pot. I need the, I want the income. Yeah. So then I'm just trying to reinvest this. And then I find myself going, I'm out here looking for something like what I just sold. But why did I even sell it? I should have just kept it. But that's kind of the cycle that it is. And then the main reason is if, if, if really getting down to it. I'm being a little bit unfair to myself because I would sell things at higher multiples than I bought them for. So the real thing I was doing was trading multiples. Yeah. 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 I buy something at a two and a half and I want to sell it at a three and a half or whatever, yeah. you know, so I just that's have you I'm in the middle and then, then sell it, move on. Do you subscribe to the, the Michael Gerber? I think it was him, the e-myth kind of entrepreneur idea that you should build a business to sell it. That should, whenever you start a business, you should, you should be in the mindset that you're going to sell it. Even if you're the one that ends up buying it. Do you know, Michael? I uh, not personally. No, I know his books and his, his, his ideas. Yeah, so I do. I do. I, I think if you're going to have a business, 
that it should always be in a position where if someone called you up and said, Hey, I want to buy it, that it's something that you could put the financials together and lay it out for someone in a yeah. very short period of time and say, here's what it looks like. All things are for sale. You never know. Every once in a while we get a moonshot that approaches us. Um, you know, I'm kind of, I kind of subscribe more to the, uh, to the kind of like view of the world in terms of, of work in that as entrepreneurs, we only get hit with like one or two really good opportunities to make lots of money every few years. And we spend the rest of our time trying to replicate the ones that came. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, this has kind of contributed to my own personal boredom. You know, like my issue as a person, if you want to get into like, you know, if you want to do a little therapy session with Brad right now, (laughs) my issue. Don't need to lie down. Yes. (laughs) You might. Uh, (laughs) My issue is nothing excites me, Mm. you know, in the business world anymore, because what was fun to me was when I had made no money and I was trying to figure out how to make money online. And so those years where I was short on capital, but I was high on energy. Yeah. That was the most, when I think back on my career and I think about when were you having the most fun? That was it. Yeah. I was oh, seeing, no, I totally get that. I totally, I was seeing the revenues come in yeah. and I didn't know how it was going to translate into actual income, but the excitement of checking yeah. it every five minutes and like working on the initiatives. And then what happened for me is I started having some success and making money became something that was easier for me to do than I ever realized it would be. But once I made money, I never could find that drive mm. again. Now my wife and my five children would tell you that wow. I work hard yeah you know that they, they would say i mean you know they would say he says he doesn't do he says he doesn't work that hard but he's working all the time I and mean, we see him like he's he's at the office he's up early every day he's out you now i would say you know if they saw what i was doing at the office they might not be as impressed with you know about <laughs> <laughs> what, what's actually going on but in all my circles even at quiet yeah. life i've had people at quiet life call me and say man i don't see how you get so much done i mean i i'm known as a productive person um, I've always said that I think that I'm a fast worker. So whenever I do work, I think I get a lot done. Yeah. Um, but I lack, like, I wish there was an idea that I was so excited about that. I wanted to go pour my blood, sweat and tears into it, but there's not. Yeah. And it's, a, you know what, Brad, I, I said, it. I think I said before we went and hit the record button, you and I are very similar and you're, you're preaching to the choir here, but because I, if I go back to my Jersey example, the reason why I've just sort of had to rekindle my love for Jersey is I, I love the thrill of the startup. Do you know what I mean? I love the generation of ideas and the getting thing going. And if I'm still involved 18 months later, it's a miracle because I I'm on to the next thing. Right. And so with Jersey, we were like, this is great. This is brilliant. This is running. This is working. And I'm on to the next thing. So I've hired a team to run Jersey and I dip in and out of it. And then I'm on to the next thing, whether that's a consulting um, company, which we set up, whether that's a, a web agency, which we set up, whether that's another e-commerce website we set up. I'm always, do you know what I mean? Every 12, 18 months, I've got to have something new to get my teeth into, um, to get that, to try and find that, drive that energy. Um, and I don't know if that's a thing common with entrepreneurs. It kind of feels like it is. We like the startup. 
We like figuring it out right at the beginning. It is. And actually, one of the answers that sellers tell me the most frequently when I say, why do you want to sell? Because I, I do kind of go down this road where I try to convince people not to sell first and just to see, make sure, because sometimes they're, they, they realize that they don't want to sell. Mm. And it's better for them to realize that before we start working on this project than whenever we're supposed to close in three days and they call me and tell me they can't do it, which is, <laughs> yeah. um, so I try to, I try to go down that road of like really trying to figure out where they're at. But I think the most common and the most compelling answer that I get is what you just said, which is, I just don't, I just like to start businesses. Yeah. Don't really want to be there to see it come to fruition. I'm happy to, happy to pass up the moonshot to jump into something new. Yeah. And some of the people that come back over and over again and buy over and over again in quite light, that's who they are. Mm -hmm. They've got an operations company set up. Somebody's running the operation. They have set up a scenario where they can go vet businesses and buy businesses and, and do the exciting idea and jump in for a few months and, and then kind of pass it off or sell it or whatever it is they're going to do. Yeah, it sounds ideal. It's part of the reason why I did the consulting and coaching is because you actually, um, it was, there was a lot of people saying, can you come help? And just the thrill of going in somewhere new with that fresh challenge, that fresh idea. I, I, I guess I thrive in that kind of environment. I love that, that type of thing. And so I get that that would be, um, a big reason. Um, now, before we carry on, because <laughs> I feel like I could talk about this for hours, right? I got so uh, lots of things going on. One of the things that I did want to ask you um, was about this phrase, reckless honesty. What is that all about for you guys? Okay, so technically, I've been told we're supposed to say relentless honesty because some of the like... Um, whatever focused studies or whatever said that reckless seemed a little too harsh. Okay. Personally like reckless. But I think reckless is great. <laughs> it appeals so to me. Story, here's the story with reckless honesty. It is that we are in an industry. Remember when I said that when Mark approached me that I said, be a broker, those guys are all sleaze bags. Remember yeah. that? Yeah. That's generally how I feel about the industry. Like I, I really do. So, you know, I don't know that they're all like that. There'll probably be some guy listening that's like a broker for somebody else. He's like, man, that Brad's terrible. He's making us out to be, you know, but I just like the people that I worked with. I, I bought businesses and, and sold some businesses through brokerages. I wasn't impressed. I didn't like who I dealt with. So one of the things that it seems like is a common approach in the industry is that you bring your business to us and to one of our competitors. And our competitor says, Hey, Matt, what do you want to sell for? And you're like, well, I want to sell for a four times multiple. And they're like, okay, sounds good. Just sign this 12 month engagement letter and we're going to list it out there for four times multiple for you. And so they put it out there. And then after three months, you haven't heard anything and you email them and say, Hey, can we get on the phone? I want to talk about what's going on with my business sale. And they're going to say, well, the activity has been a little bit light. We probably need to drop the price. Okay. Well, what do we need to drop it to? Well, if you want to get some interest, you're probably going to need to drop it to 3.25. And then you're going to say, well, that's what Brad told me he was going to sell it for. Yeah. And he only needed 90 days. So the reckless honesty has to do with, let's just go ahead and have the tough conversations right now up front. And so, and let's not be afraid to tell people the truth, even if the truth hurts. You know, so today, <clears throat> I get this a lot. I got an email today. 
really fantastic brand for sale, potential opportunity for me to jump in and broker the deal. They sent me an email and said, hey, I'm courting you versus several other brokers. Um, I saw your fee schedule. Is that negotiable? Let me know how we can negotiate your fee schedule. And so I just wrote back and said, no. <laughs> it is what no, it is. I'm not going to negotiate my fee schedule. Mm. And, and then I said, and look, if you're just looking for someone to tell you what you want to hear, there's there's a long list of people that are willing to do it in the industry. Um, you know, I don't charge retainers right now for my services. Uh, that may not always be the case. Uh, I'm starting to work on a lot more private equity deals. And so private equity deals generally come with retainers. I mean, that they just, that's just, as a general rule, they do because they, they have a lower success rate of completing for one reason or another. And they usually come with, you know, a retainer of something, you know, five, 10, 15 grand a month, depending on what the size of the business is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of reckless honesty is just, let's just tell them the truth now. Let's tell them what we really think about what the business is worth. Let's let's be willing to let a listing not happen with us now, but let's tell them. Let's let's let them know up front why we're not willing to do it. And so, in the case of this guy right here, he might have gotten that email today. And he might have said that Brad's a jerk. I asked him to negotiate his fees. He won't even negotiate his fees. But what I think he'll realize is if he goes and lists with somebody else and then he doesn't sell it, I think he's going to look at my email differently. Then yeah. I think he's going to come back and be like, well, I guess I'm probably willing to pay your fees. If you're, if someone's just willing to be honest with me, I've had that said to me a hundred times. If you're just willing to be honest with me, that'd be great. <laughs> I'm like, so uh, it, it's it a is, beautiful it's a statement thing. About, we're going to be honest with you no matter what. Yeah. We're just going to tell you like it is, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I'll, I'll be honest with you from a marketing standpoint. I actually think that being brutally honest with people gets us more deals. Well, it would definitely get you more repeat customers. It's very, um, who's that chap I'm thinking of? Patrick Leancioni. You know, he wrote the book Getting Naked, which is is pretty much, if you want to read his book, just listen to what Brad said. It's a very good summary of that book. Uh, <laughs> it's a brilliant book, but in effect, be brutally honest with your clients. And um, yeah. I think it's, it's brilliant. Can I ask um, if... Uh, there'll be some questions, I think, in people's minds. So, so quick fire questions. Do you broker UK business sales as well as US sales? Do you do international if people are in the UK or Australia or New Zealand? Can they get in touch with you? Yes. And uh, is there, you know, the guy said, is your fee structure negotiable? Do you mind sharing what the, what sort of ballpark figures we need to think about in our head in terms of brokerage fees? Yeah, so we it's a little complicated. We follow what's called a modern layman form, formula for calculating your um, commission on a sale. So that runs uh, – it's, it's a graduated scale that reduces as the transaction value goes up. Okay. So anything less than a million is 10%. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter whether you – know, if you've got a $700,000 business for sale and it's got 100000 in inventory, that $800,000 will be assessed at 10%. Okay. Now, once you go over a million – inventory drops to 3%, no matter what size the transaction is. So let's just say, you know, if we're talking about a um, $1.5 million sale and it's got $200,000 in inventory, you pay 10% on the first million, you pay 9% on the second million. So in that deal, you got 100,000 on the first million, you got 45,000 on the 500,000 for the second million. That's at 9%. I made that too complicated. I should have done, done a $2 million deal. Let's do a 2 <laughs> 
saying a two million dollar spot the accountant making things difficult with numbers yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) you got a two million dollar deal you're gonna do 10 percent on the first million that's a hundred thousand you're gonna do nine percent on the second million that's ninety thousand and then there's two hundred thousand in inventory at three percent be six grand Mm -hmm. so for a 2.2 million dollar deal inclusive of inventory you're looking at a hundred and ninety six thousand dollars in fees and we get paid when the deal closes now um, that scale keeps going down. It goes 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3. So how that really works out is in the M&A world, private equity, investment bank guys, they want to make about 5% on a transaction, but they don't want to fiddle with anything less than $25 million. Mm-hmm. So if you take our modern layman and you scale it all the way up to like a $30 million transaction, you're at like a four point something percent commission rate. Mm-hmm. Also on private equity, since the inventory is included, it, it doesn't get assessed separately. It's just part of the deal. It's hard to know what, you know, what's what. So, um, so for most of our deals, you know, the people that are on our list, kind of our, what I call our bread and butter deals are one to $5 million. Mm-hmm. Those are, we've got a very large list, of very active buyers, sellers on that one to 5 million list. That's, that's who we email out to. That's who our site kind of caters to. Um, and so those folks you know, or following that modern layman, 10987654333333. That's that's the way that it gets calculated. And so it's not super easy to do in your head all the time, but just know this that our fees are 10% or less yeah. as the transaction grows. So and 10% then, is a good ballpark starting figure and then figure it 10% out. 10% is good, up to a million, you're gonna be right at that 10% mark. And then, you know, every once in a while people will take on a smaller deal. And those this is just at the discretion of the broker. Like in in my case, um, if it's a perfect fit, I might take on a small deal. I guard my time really carefully, so I'm not as inclined to just take on anything nowadays. I really try to focus on – I've been focusing a lot on private equity deals recently. Um, but we have a minimum of 25000 So if, if for some reason you've got a business that's worth 200000 and a quiet light broker is willing to take it on, you're going to pay more than 10% because we have a minimum of 25000 Right. I'm with you. If we sell it for $200,000, you are going to pay us twenty five grand just because that's the minimum fee. But um, on the private equity side, just since I talked about the list, private equity side, we go pursue the buyers there. So uh, like I've got a deal that um, we've been uh, working on uh, last couple months and uh, actually had a buyer fall through on it due to some trends that changed with the business. And, you know, that one, we've gone out to 460 private equity firms. Okay. Ended up with several offers. And, uh, but we're going out and proactively reaching out. And, um, so we do a, we do, do a, do that on the smaller deal. So if I came to you and said, I want to, I want to list Jersey, um, I'm happy with your fee. Let's, let's rock and roll Do you. How do you promote it? How do you, how do you find the buyer? Or is it a case of actually, we just know so many people now that. Well, so, so what happens is if it's less than 5 million in sale price, it goes on the site and it gets a scheduled email date. That email list has got a massive amount of buyers on it. Mm-hmm. And so if it's an attractive, we've done everything, or done our homework right, we should get 100 to 200 inquiries in the first 24 to 48 hours when it hits the website. Wow. And that is a combination of, here's, here's what happens. We put it on the website and then we schedule the email usually for the same day or the day after. When it hits our website, there's all these services in the industry that scrape our website. Yeah. 
they pull our listings, they email them, email them out to their groups. They've, they've even got, I've even heard of some that've got like text message alerts saying we've listed something, you know? So, um, so there's people that follow us and then we also email out our list. And so when I list a business, depending on the size, now, if I like, like if I do a $25 million listing, I'm not even going to show people the materials without like some pretty serious vetting. So mm -hmm. you know, if I do that, I'm not going to get hundred to 200 inquiries. And I don't actually want 100 to 200 inquiries on that size deal. No, like the nature I, of the deal changes, doesn't it? Yeah, the nature yeah. of the deal. Changes. But but if it's a business that's under five million dollars, um, we're just going to put it out on our list. We're going to get. We're not going to have to do a lot of proactive searching. It's going to be more about filtering through the people that come to us, yeah. figuring out who the best fits are. So if I wanted to buy businesses, then I I need to go to your website and subscribe to your email list. All you got to do is pick one listing. Click a little checkbox that says notify me of future listings, and you'll get an email every time a listing launches. Oh, doesn't okay. mean you'll doesn't mean you'll get an email for every single thing you see on the site. Sometimes I have people say, Hey, I signed up for your checkbox, but this deal right here, I didn't get an email on. Like like the $25.2 million deal I just mentioned. Yeah. You know, yeah, to that, be fair, as good as I am, Brad, I'm I'm not in that league to buy something for $25 million just yet. Give, give, give me a year or two. Well, I have people <laughs> tell me about it. I have people that yell at me about it. And yeah, yeah. What I'm trying to say is that we put everything that's sale pending up on the site, even if it never went to the public list. Okay. And no, that's really me, interesting. There's a lot of buyers that feel like they have a right to see my listings. <laughs> that's part of where the, the reckless honesty comes in. Yeah. I'm paid by my client, which yeah. is the seller. If someone but buys my, my answer to that is like, hey, I don't really care that you feel offended by it. I'm doing what's best for my client. So mm. if that means that I only go to three people and I give them preferred access, you know, on the deal that I just told you that, that I had yeah. three competing offers, you know how many people we went to? Uh, one, three. <laughs> three competing offers. Three went people. To three people. Yeah. Do you, um, uh, do you charge a fee for someone who wants to buy a business or is it seller pays all the fees? Seller pays the fees. Fair enough. There is talk, um, and I think there's some interest. Um, Quiet Light is going to be offering some buy side services. I think it comes at about 300 an hour. People buy so many hours. Mm. And that is a Quiet Light broker sourcing your business for you off market. Not through our deals, but yeah. through off market deals. Yeah. And we've got some guys on the team that has some experience in that. Um, but again, each person's different. Like I'm not, I have no interest in doing buy side deals. If you want to pay me like a million dollars to do some buy side deals, I'll do it. But I don't. It's got to be worth it, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't really want to do it. I, yeah. I, I don't really like to measure my time in dollars per hour as a general rule anyway. And what I want to do is work on listings that are exciting and get them sold. Well, listen, Brad, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. I super appreciate you being here with us and sharing all of that and being uh, recklessly honest uh, with your with your information. I just and I love that phrase. You may see that appear on my websites going forward. I hope it's not trademarked. Um, uh, just being recklessly honest. Now, if people want to get in touch with you, get a hold of you, connect with you, what's the best way to do that? How do they reach out to you? Two things I want to mention. One is Brad at Quiet Light Brokerage is my email. It's the easiest way to get a hold of me. Um, I'm on Twitter if you want to see my personal rants at Brad Wayland. Um, 
But the other thing I wanted to mention is we have a referral program. This is as much for you as anybody, Matt. And that is about 35% of our listings are now coming from referrals. So the way that works is if you have someone that you think their business looks like they'd be a good candidate for Quiet Light and they say they're interested in selling, you send me an email and copy them on it. So Matt, you got your friend that's got the, you know, $5 million business yeah. and he wants to sell and you say, Hey, this guy, Brad was the best podcast guest I've ever had. And I want to just, sure. Say, let's go with that. <laughs> um, this guy seems like he might not screw it up too much. Maybe it's like that. Um, so you would send an email to me and copy them and say, Hey, I want to introduce you to my friend. So-and-so you don't have to say anything about the referral or anything. When I respond, I'll say, Hey, Matt, thanks for the intro. But then what I do is I put him in our system and then I tag Matt Edmondson in our system. And if that guy's deal ever closes, you get an email that says, Hey, we owe you 10% of our fees on this. Oh, wow. So uh, I have reached out to tons of people in the last two years and said, Hey, I owe you eight grand. Do you have like a account you want me to send it to? And they're like, are you joking? I'm like, no, I do. Here's a form, <laughs> fill it out. We'll send it out to you. So we, we take it very serious, but if people refer sellers to us that are you know ready to go, and it, sometimes it takes a while for these things to come together. You might refer it today, and you might not hear from us for three years because we put them on a path to plan for their exit, mm -hmm. and then we execute it down the road. But the cool thing is, is once we get it, I send you an email that says, hey, Matt, thanks a lot for the referral. just want you to know this thing sells. You're going to get a commission. I've tagged you in our system. And so that tag in the system just lets you know we, we've got a record of it. We know that you were involved. We know that if that deal closes, so before I can actually get through the steps to close it, it says, do we owe anyone a referral? And I go to the referral field and it says, Matt Emerson. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that guy that I went on. Fellow ginger, I went on his podcast. <laughs> Fellow ginger ago. accountant. <laughs> and we both like Kansas City Chiefs. So it's like, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. There you go. I think the only difference, Brad, is I've actually had laser surgery on my eyes, which is why I'm not wearing my glasses right now. I need to. I'm a, I'm a full-time glasses wearer. Yeah, it's um, I, one of the best things I ever did was getting that laser surgery. Try, unbelievable. Anyway, I won't go there. This, this is not the show to talk about laser surgery. But no, I appreciate that. And hey, listen, if you want to reach out to Brad, I'm sure Brad would more than love to connect with you and um, just let you uh, know what's going on. Well, we will put his email address in the show notes in a way that the spam bots don't pick it up. Um, but you know, reach out to just one more time, Brad, what was your email? Brad at quietlightbrokerage.com. Quietlightbrokerage.com. So, uh, email Brad. And if you're feeling generous, just say, listen, I was listening to Matt's show. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you buy him a pint if this comes off. There you go. Um, that'll be brilliant. Listen, Brad, really appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for being super generous. And, uh, it's, it's been fab. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, a big, huge, special thanks to uh, my very special guest, Brad. Wasn't he fantastic? Wasn't he super helpful with all that information? You know, uh, my aim whenever I speak to guests is always to find something real, practical, you know, those kind of nuggets that I can use on my own e-commerce businesses and websites. Well, we got a lot of those today, right? And understanding how to build your e-commerce business in such a way as to sell it Goodness me, there was some really great stuff in that. So I hope you got uh, a lot out of it too. I hope you got some great stuff on 
on how to sell your own business or maybe even buy a business. Uh, If you did, then I would appreciate it if you could rate the show on iTunes or even share it out, you know, so we can connect with more folks from around the world. Super helpful. And as I said at the start, all of the notes, links and transcripts to today's show are online and you can get them for free. Yes, you can, totally for free at mattedmondson.com. Thanks for listening. Make sure you come back next time as we get to interview some more great guests on how to grow our own online business. You've been listening to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson. Join us next time for more interviews, tips, and tools for building your business online.